I'm looking at the generics manifesto and looking at the section on like opening existentials and this still looks clumsy. So I'm wondering what does this look like in Haskell, but we don't have to cover that right now. I think they're type classes. They're called, so protocols with associated type are called type classes in Haskell, which I feel like maybe a more useful way to think about it. We should probably start the show. Let's start the show. Hello, and welcome to Fatal Error. This is episode 29. I'm Suresh Kanlu. And I am Chris Dezombak. So this is uh, the last episode of our second season uh, that we public. There'll be one more private episode, uh, Patreon only, which will come out next week. But this is the last uh, public episode of the season. We'll be taking six weeks off after that next Patreon episode. And then we'll be back with season three. Maybe slightly different format, maybe different different topics. Who knows? Could be anything. Yeah, back when we decided to start doing this podcast, we pretty arbitrarily decided to do um, is it twenty week seasons that we that we landed on? Yeah, it's twenty weeks on, six weeks off, which works okay. out perfectly to a half a year. Right. So we can do two seasons per year. And we chose this just because uh, I, I especially was a little bit skeptical of committing to doing this full time. And we figured that seasons would give us like friendly stopping points if we ever wanted to stop. We're still planning to have a season three here. Yeah. Um, we don't want to bear the lead. We hope there will be a season three. We're coming back. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll be back. We're just taking a little bit of a break. Uh, I and, feel like first season's experiment was the podcast itself to see if anybody even liked it. And second season was this whole Patreon thing, which is almost making like $400 a month on uh, Patreon, which is great. And so that's like covering our editing costs, which has been really nice. Mm-hmm. And season three, what are we going to do? Who knows? It could be anything. Yeah. And on that note, if you, our listeners, have suggestions on what you would like to see us do in season three, um, if you want to see us like continue to do more of the same, if you want to see us branch out into some different topics or different formats, please let us know. We're happy to hear from you. Definitely. Absolutely. So, Chris, what do we want to talk about today? So today we thought that a uh, nice, easy subject for us to cover. (laughs) (laughs) Let's keep it real light for our last episode would be protocols with associated types, which are something that will be familiar to people who've been doing uh, especially some more protocol-oriented Swift programming, because they come with some sharp edges that you run into pretty quickly. And uh, we thought we'd kind of dive into this subject today. Yeah, I feel like when you're writing Swift in the beginning, you run into a lot of errors. Most of the errors are fixable. But the, what is it, the, the protocol with associated types can't be used can only be used as a generic constraint yeah that's the one you hit that and you're just like uh well i guess there's just nothing i can do here i have to totally re-architect everything and it sucks because you kind of do like there's no fix it there's no quick fix to apply there it's not that you did anything wrong right yep that's just so stuck I guess a good place to start, and this is a subject that I think you, Suresh, are a little bit more uh, more knowledgeable about and more comfortable with than I am. So do we want to start, and let, let's maybe just cover briefly what a protocol with is, with an associated type is. Yes, that would be good. Do you want to take that, or should I take a crack at it? Uh, I mean, I can take a crack at it. So it, this is a protocol, which is somewhat different than normal protocols that, than you might write, and it's different than protocols you would write in Objective-C. Because it forces whatever uh, whatever conforms to the protocol, whatever class or struct conforms to the, this protocol, to have a type alias. 
embedded in it. And uh, that type alias is sort of a placeholder at the protocol level. But when you adopt the protocol, you have to like assign this placeholder to be a specific type. Right, exactly. The keyword that you use used to be type alias, which was insanely confusing. And now it's a different keyword. The, the different keyword is associated type. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Right. So once you, let's say you create a protocol that has one of these associated types, when you sort of conform to that protocol, you can very explicitly write within your like sort of concrete class, you can write type alias, the name that the, that the protocol expects equals the concrete type that that, that conformance is providing. Uh, you can write that explicitly, or if you just use it in the bodies of your functions with the actual concrete thing, it'll just kind of figure it out and it'll just work. Right. And uh, right. That's an important thing to note is that you can uh, sort of implicitly declare what that associated type is. Right. Yeah. That's what I tend to do. Yeah. Uh, so where some places that this or the place that this probably most comes up or most frequently comes out would be the uh, equatable protocol. Yeah, this is definitely a big one. Is part of the Swift language. And at some point you may well find yourself like declaring... Um, that if, you know, for some reason you want your protocol to also conform to equatable, right? Right. And then you go to declare that something is an instance of your protocol, and you get this error because equatable is the protocol has the associated type, or has the yeah has the associated type of self, which is um, just a placeholder for like whatever concrete type is conforming to the equatable protocol. Right, so far so good. But that, but but that's still an associated type, and so you can't use a protocol that conforms to equatable just by by itself, like as a type for a variable in your program. Yeah, exactly. So um, even though you're providing the conformance for equatable based on only the things that are provided in your protocol, the Swift type system doesn't really know that. And so you can't um, can't use it. I think with Equatable, there's a slightly simpler construction of the problem that makes it more obvious. Okay. Uh, let's say you you have like you have a person object that's Equatable, and you have a house object that's Equatable, and then you want to assign one of them to a reference that where the type is explicitly marked as just Equatable. As soon as you do that, the system will crap out on you and say, hey, you can't do that. Right. And the reason that you can't do that is because, let's say you have two of those Equatable, or two references to two Equatable things. When it goes, if you go to try to call equal equal on them, it won't know what equal equal implementation to use. So let's say one of those is a person, one of those is a house. It has no implementation to use because houses can't be equal to people. And so that, that function just doesn't even exist. And like, it just wouldn't be possible. So to prevent that from being an issue, the Swift, uh, sorry, the Swift type system just prevents you from being able to, to create references to the, something that is just equatable by itself. Right. And so I think but right before the episode, I was kind of thinking along the lines that um, I, I I know very little about Haskell, but Haskell calls protocols with associated types um, type classes. Like this this represents right. the same concept. And as, I, as you were describing equatable here, like this kind of intuitively makes sense. Like that name almost intuitively makes sense because equatable doesn't really describe a type on its own. It describes like a family or like a class of types that have this property that they're, that they're equatable, right? 
the yeah the associated type that self requirement if the only thing you know about something uh, about two things are that they're equatable you can't say that they're the same thing all you know is that they're in this sort of equatable family or, or equatable type class right 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 so i i was thinking like um in in preparation for this episode i was watching alexis gallagher's uh, functional swift conference talk about protocols with associated types or pats as he calls them and one of the things that he mentioned was in uh, in Haskell, or a paper that he mentioned, uh, mentions that in Haskell, these things are called type classes. And I think that is almost a like, more intuitive name. Yeah, I I have trouble with the Haskell, especially that name, because like type is a thing already in the world we live in, and class is a thing. And like, what does that make type class? Maybe you know type what I mean? family? Yeah, that's not bad. I like that. But it's just like naming is hard. Types all the way down. Yeah, it's just types all the way down. <laughs> yeah, so so definitely that Alexis Gallagher talk, I think he really breaks down exactly what's going on with this problem. We're going to try to do a good job as well, but we toss a link to that in the show notes. And uh, Alexis does an excellent job of, of breaking down what is going on with this, Absolutely. With this problem. Another place that you might run into this, and, and probably the place I have the most experience with it, is in the sequencing collection stuff. So if you ever try to, uh, you know, you're working with some 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 stuff, uh, some arrays, and you're mapping and filtering and lazying and all that stuff over these uh, arrays, and you end up with some weird type. And you're like, you know what? I don't really care that this is a lazy flat map sequence. What I do care about is that this is just some sequence and you would love to be able to write like this function returns a sequence and like sequence is a type within the system and so you go to write that and it says well hey like you can't do this because you know uh what's the error again protocol xyz can only be used as a generic constraint because it has self or associated type requirements the associated type requirements in sequences case are the iterator and then the iterator has its own associated type for the elements and again, you can kind of imagine why this is a problem. If you just say, hey, I'm returning a sequence, you're not saying which sequence you're returning, a sequence of what, what are those objects going to be? And because you can't express that in the type system at this moment, you can't return a regular sequence. So you have to either transform it into an array or give it the actual concrete type or use something called a type eraser, uh, in, which in this case would be called any sequence, which is a special concrete type that is generic. So what is a type eraser? Right. I'm very glad you asked. There is also a good talk by a friend of the show, Gwendolyn Weston from TriSwift last year explaining type erasers. We should throw that in the show notes. But essentially the idea is uh, type erasers are good for two things. One is if you have like a really crazy nested type, like you have a lazy flat map sequence of, you know, an element and like a, or of let's say a string and a like um, zipped sequence of an integer. And it's like this crazy long type. And it's that way because of um, implementation details and you want to hide that long thing and not have to type it out. You can do that. And the way that you do that is basically wrapping it in an any sequence, which will, uh, it'll treat it as just a generic sequence um, and let you sort of return just that any sequence instead of the long, complicated type. That's use number one. So, I mean, how does that work? Like, what does any sequence actually look like? So under the hood, what it does is, and this is like the really messy part, and if you want to make your own type eraser, you have to do this. But basically... It has properties for each of the functions on the protocol, and when you initialize it with the sequence, 
it will copy the implementations of that sequence to its own property, which is like a block, and then it will execute that block when it's the right time. Oh. And that kind of just works. That's really messy. Like you end up duplicating the entire interface inside your eraser. You sure do. Well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. So it works really well if there's very few, very few methods and properties on your uh, associated type. But um but yeah, so that is that is a way that, that can is work. Is this something you could code gen? I was thinking the same thing. Um I think it's possible. I don't think it'll be easy. Hmm. So fortunately, a lot of the protocols that are baked into the system, such as sequence collection, bidirectional collection, they have their own, or like index as well, they have their own corresponding type erased things. So there's any sequence, any iterator, any bidirectional collection, any collection, any index, and so on. Any hashable. Uh, I don't think there's an any equator. Well, I was just going to say, I assume that this only exists for uh, types in the standard library wh- where it makes sense to have a type eraser. What would you do with an, a type eraser for equatable, right? Like You have to give it a concrete type of what the self is, so it wouldn't be that useful, right? So you would say any equatable, and then in brackets, you'd put like house or person or whatever. And um, that's not that much better than just writing house or person. So yeah. kind of who cares? So I think for, for protocols with self requirements, it's not a big deal. It's for protocols with associated type requirements that this is super useful. So yeah, so any hashable, any iterator, all those things are kind of built in. They're already written for you. You can kind of take advantage of them. They can be a solution to this problem. Yeah, that's a type eraser. Okay, so... So yeah, so so yeah, just to, to sum up, it's either to like shorten some really complicated long type name that has like a lot of nested stuff in it, or it's to um, basically be able to return a sequence. Like you can't do that before, so you return an any sequence that is generic over the type that the sequence should be bending. Okay. Yeah, so, so those are the two uses. So things that you can do when you run into this error, you can use type erasers. You can, if you're trying to use something with that's a protocol that has an associated type, you end up needing to make the class or the structure that has that that uses that protocol. Uh, it, it also ends up having to be generic, right? Right. And I guess you see that with type erasers because those end up being generic, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, what else, if anything, can I do when I run into this problem? There's two other approaches. One is so protocols are essentially some types, right? They are either this or that. Swift has another system in place for doing some types, and that's enums, um, because enums know all of their concrete types at. Uh, sort of compile time. They know everything that they can be. You can also use an enum. If you can switch up your protocol and replace it with an enum, then you know all the types of everything all the time, and you can just use that. That's one other option, is switch switch out your protocol for an enum. So I want to call out a few things here. First, this that solution assumes that you know what everything that conforms to your protocol is. Or, yes. So protocols have the advantage obviously that anyone anywhere can adopt them and so this isn't really a viable solution if you're building a library it's a solution if you're building an application and you have some finite number of types that you wanted to conform to this protocol yeah exactly so you like for example you can conform to a protocol across module boundaries but you can't add an extra enum case across module boundaries right and that's part of the reason this this whole problem goes away is because if you know everything that it can be, it's just easier to easier to deal with. Yeah, with all the types and stuff. The other thing that I wanted to call out was uh, you use the word 
use the phrase some types and we didn't define that term. So let's go ahead and define that. Yeah, so it's... Okay, cool. So um, basically there's some types and product types. And I'm not going to do a good job explaining this over, over the air, I think. Product types are like structs where the state space of a thing is all of the different possible values for each of the properties multiplied together. So if you had three booleans in a struct, like boolean A, boolean B, boolean C as three different properties, you would multiply two because there's each boolean can be in two different states, times two for the second one, times two for the third one, and you end up with a state space of eight different possibilities that this, that eight different states that this struct can be in. Okay. On the other hand, if you have an enum, it's called a sum type because you can sum the potential different values. So if you had three different cases, each with an associated Boolean, you would have six different potential states that this thing could be at two plus two plus two. So it can either be in case A, which uh, case A of true, case A of false, case B of true, case B of false, or case C of true and case C of false. And there's like these mathematical things. It's like an abstract data type and blah, blah, and go read Brandon Williams' blog and he'll teach you all that stuff. Uh, I'm not very good at it. But um, essentially, it just represents this thing can be like this or like this or like this or like this. Whereas a product type is more like this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing. So as a type grows, a sum type grows with the like product of different states that it's like properties can be in. And a sum type yes. grows with the sum of the different states that it's say like different cases and associated values can be in. Yes, exactly. Okay. All right. So basically protocols and enums can kind of fill, they both fill this role essentially the same way. So uh, they, they both can act as some types. So if it's possible for you to switch away from protocols and towards enums, you could do that. That will solve your problem. I also forgot this. Uh, there's another um, system of some types within Swift, which is subclassing. So if you use polymorphic inheritance and you just subclass stuff, that is also a some type because it's either in it's either of this type or of this type or of this type. And those don't run into the same generic pro- uh, they run into different slightly different generic problems, but they're not nearly as insurmountable as as generic constraints as associated types rather. Okay. Um you can you can use subclassing as well. So basically the the first solution to using like if you run into this error is use a type eraser. Second solution is use a different sum type, either enums or subclassing. I like literally almost forgot subclassing because I like push it out of my head as an option at pretty much all times. Yeah, I I tend to not use subclasses of things other than like UI kit classes in in Swift yeah, programming. Pretty much when you have to. Yeah. Then there's one more thing you can do to deal with these errors. And and it's kind of in the in the error itself. It says protocol whatever can only be used as a generic constraint because it has associated type requirements. So what is this generic constraint? So you can say when you're defining an extension, when you're defining a class, when you're defining a function, hey, I expect to be using this type, uh, and this type should have these uh, qualifications or constraints. And if you, so that's like when you create like a, uh, like a class and you, you know, you have some generic type like T and you say where T is like this and T is like that and T is like the other thing. And so you can actually use those to tell the type system, if you know that I'm working, let's say with a sequence, and if you know that the items in that sequence are strings, then please make available this function, for example. This is really hard to talk about. On, on a podcast, I think. <laughs> I could take a stab at it if you like. 
I'm, I don't. I have I have some concrete examples, but um, if you can, we. I mean, we can take a stab, and if you can, if you can say it without, if you can do it without just reading code at me. Yeah, let me let me try here. So the way that I would approach for this base approach this is basically to say you can bridge the gap between these generic constra- these like uh, associated type constraints and true generic programming in Swift by using these like where clauses. So an example of this I ha- I have one that I use but it might be a little hard to explain. Era. I mean, maybe let's, if we can also come up with an example to put in the show notes, that would be good. Yeah. I don't think I could, I could reasonably explain this over, over a microphone. Essentially the concept is that you tra- you change any of your uh, associated type requirements into concrete requirements at the, at like compile time. So you basically say like at compile time, you will know what this is. And use a special generic version of this class or this function um, that is specialized for this version of the protocol. Okay. Uh, we should come up with an example to put in the show notes of that. Yeah, I will try to think about a simple, simplified example. It's a little bit tough to explain. Okay. Let's move on from this right now and maybe talk for just a minute about why we have these protocols with associated types instead of having just like generic protocols that look a lot like generic classes in Swift, right? Because that is something that the language designers could have chosen. Yeah. I don't have an answer for that, to be totally honest with you. So, do you have an answer for that? I think I do. Uh, and I can try my best to explain okay. it here. Um, cool. Hit me. So protocols are something that uh, it's it's very possible that you may have multiple associated types on one protocol, right? Mm-hmm, right. And you may have a class or a uh, some function that deals with multiple protocols, right? Right. Each of those protocols could also have one or more associated types. And so if those protocols were genericized in the way that classes are, everyone that tries to work with those protocols, like when you're trying to write your, your declaration that like this function takes whatever generic protocol you're working with, mm-hmm. you end up having to... I don't know exactly what the word what the right word is. Like you end up having to expose or having to deal with or like almost to duplicate or or to declare these like those generic constraints like everywhere that you're declaring that for example you're writing a function that works with this type. Right. And as you add more protocols and more associated types to those protocols that gets really hairy really quickly. Um, going back to Alexis Gallagher's talk, he is a good example of what this looks like when this starts to blow up in Java, uh, and he compares it to what it looks like in, um, I forget, two other languages, one of which is Haskell and one of which, oh, and, and C++, both of which have things that are kind of like protocols with associated types, and it looks generally better. It doesn't blow up in the same way. I also have an example... Um, I also have an example, which I'll add to the show notes, uh, which is a web page discuss, uh, discussing Scala. And it's a, a blog post just trying to answer the question, when should you use a basically an associated type uh, instead of generic um, type parameters? Because Scala uh, will support both of these different uh, um, different approaches. 
And this also has a, an example of how things start to blow up pretty quickly when you're using the, like, quote, generic protocol approach um, gotcha. instead of associated types. So a concrete example of this would be like if you wanted to make a... Uh, if you were to refer to a generic collection, you would have to define its index type. You would have to define its subsequence, its iterator, its uh, iterator's element. You'd have to define all this stuff in sort of inside the brackets. And because that would be so messy, it's just like you're not allowed to do that. Yeah, it just would become pr- fairly unusable pretty quickly. And I, again, I can't recommend enough for many reasons that our listeners go watch uh, Alexis Gallagher's talk because he has some good examples of this. Um, yeah, he really cracked open the, yeah, the whole thing. Yeah, really just stop listening to this episode and go <laughs> watch that talk. <laughs> That's right. So if I could hit you with the softball question, is there anything in Swift's future that we could potentially use to solve this problem? Boy, I'm glad you asked. So <laughs> in the Swift repository, there's a generics manifesto, which covers features that are generics related that the Swift uh, maintainers would like to add to the language at some point. And one of the features on this list is generalized existentials. And I don't really know what that what existentials mean exactly, but the idea here is that this feature would provide a way for you to declare um for example, they have one of the examples relates to sequences. You could say that you have a sequence where its iterator dot element is string. And you end up having to put some things in brackets, but this would still allow you to use these protocols that have associated types in the way that we think of normal protocols, which would be really nice. Yeah, and they also have this nice little type alias down here of like, if maybe a future feature is that we could type alias this thing and get any sequence, not as a struct as a type eraser, but as really a true reference to that genericized existential. Right, and that would be really nice. That this would remove a lot of boilerplate that comes along with implementing type erasers right now. For sure, this is something I would love to see in the language. I don't think that we're going to see it in Swift four. Maybe no. Swift five. Swift four is like coming out in four months. There's right. We would know if this were coming in Swift four. Yeah, we would know, and it's yeah. not. But it it would be really nice because this would allow you to declare what you kind of intuitively think you should be able to declare that this is a sequence, um, any sort of sequence of strings, right? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure. This, um, just a little side note on this generics manifesto, I go back and reread this about every month or every six weeks. And I like learn something new every time that I you know, didn't didn't catch on my first read through. And so I like highly recommend like even if you've read it before, read it again, read it again in a couple of months. And as you do more swift, more of it will make sense to you. And I I, I can't recommend it. Absolutely. More. Yeah. I right, every time I reread this, there's something else that I that, that I learned that I like didn't get before. I still don't understand everything in this document. <laughs> um <laughs> but uh it's yeah, it's it's all good to read through and notice, oh, this kind of makes more sense than the last time I read this. Yeah, definitely something that, that it pays to reread it. Yeah. Yeah. So let's see, what else did we want to cover? Um That's pretty much all I wanted to cover. Yeah, I guess so. I I guess I don't really have anything else to add. Uh I have a few other uh links that I'd like to throw in the show notes that relate either to understanding associated types in more detail uh, or relate to understanding type erasers in more detail. Uh, These are 
I, I think, good references or good things to read through if you're curious, if you want to try to understand this stuff a little bit more. Nice. Yeah, toss them in. I'd like to read them. This is stuff that I come back and reread with some frequency because I, I'm, I mean, I'm still a little, I, I guess I understand what's going on here, but I don't know. There's, it's a little bit complicated. It's like going back and rereading the generics manifesto, like really wrapping your head around this and making sure that it stays fresh in your head is a little, little bit of a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. I think that maybe wraps it up for this episode. It's, it's a complex topic. Yeah, it's a complex topic. I hope that this podcast or at least the show notes are somewhat helpful for, for all of you, our listeners. <laughs> Uh, it's definitely worth knowing about. It's definitely worth learning about because if you write Swift, I think I hit this within maybe, I don't know, two or three weeks of starting to write Swift. And I was like, what is this thing? Oh, yeah. And yeah, it just you just hit it immediately. So it's good to know about it. It's good to know about the different things you can do to avoid it. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much for listening, everybody. It's been an, an exciting 29 episodes. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been really great. Uh, we'll catch you in the next season. I'll talk to you soon, Chris. We'll see you later, Sirsh.